Welcome to Inspirational Leadership. My name is Kristen Harcourt and I'm your host. I'm an executive coach and professional speaker and I created this show because I'm passionate about humanizing work and transforming leaders and I truly believe in order for leaders to be transformed it really starts with self-leadership and there's lots of things we can do around that when it comes to emotional intelligence, self-awareness, mindfulness, shifting mindsets and I have a wonderful guest today that's going to have a lot of great insight to bring to all of you around this topic. And I'm excited to introduce you to Shaliza Jamal. Uh, Shaliza is the president and founder of Curated Leadership, and she's really passionate about building inclusive working communities. Um, she does work with organizations in terms of leadership development, but then she also does a lot of work within the education system. So I'm really interested to hear all about that and welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. Um, Shaliza, I always like to start uh, with my, off with my guests just to learn a little bit more around your journey, both life and career, right? Because this show is all about being whole person focused. Um, so I know there's a lot of things I'm sure that happened on your journey to get to get you to where you are today. So I'd love for you to share a little bit more of that with our audience. Sure, absolutely. So my background is actually in theater. And I've been performing probably since I was about three years old. And so that's kind of what brought me to Toronto from Vancouver. And even before that, when I was in high school, we, I went to a fine arts high school and we were creating performances, creating plays, uh, writing, you know, and I think the, the journey into building my world as an educator, an artist and an anti-oppression anti facilitator are all kind of combined in this way. So for example, there was a, uh, a brutal death of a girl named Rena Verk when I was in grade 10 or 11. And her bullying death uh, was racially motivated, uh, bullying. They were in high school. Her death really triggered all of us in my program to really consider bullying. And cyberbullying was somewhat new at that time as well. And so we'd written this piece and performed it for folks uh, around BC and at the theaters in downtown. And for me, that was kind of the first sort of um, link for me to connecting my passion for theater and social justice um, in that in that performative way. And so then when I came out to Ontario and went to theater school, I continued to do more of that and then take courses outside and expand that and expand that kind of understanding. And then from there, I did performance. I was working in the theaters, doing marketing and fundraising and development, doing education and outreach. I remember at one of the theaters I worked with, I started their diversity council to get them thinking about these conversations. And that was about, I guess, 15 years ago. So the conversations were just starting. And then I, uh, when I was 25, I said, you know what, I've always wanted to go abroad, go back home where my mom is from and volunteer. I've always wanted to volunteer abroad or teach abroad or something. So I took a year off of my life and I went to Mombasa, Kenya, and I volunteered at the Aga Khan Academy. Um, and it was supposed to be just an experience that I you know, loved. I taught theater. I performed like in local venues and, and at the school. And I just loved it. I was my whole being. But in that experience, I actually realized that I loved the selfless nature of education and of being an educator and seeing my students blossom and grow and think critically. And I actually brought a lot of social justice kind of oriented work right there in the school. And so then I applied for teacher's college 
and thought, okay, I'll just teach and act together, or at least I have this if I want to go internationally. And then I fell into a career in education. And then I have been doing education and still theater on the side for a long time. And it wasn't until I did my master's where I felt like, okay, I had a year off, so I didn't have to worry about like permanent work and I could explore and invent. And so that's when I really started testing out and piloting the idea of working on two of my passions. So theater um, and theater for social change in a more of a, a non-conventional venue. So for example, I run workshops for educators and faculty and organizations, med students, whatever, that were theater-based using theater techniques for what I called embodied empathy. And people were very receptive. And so it started to kind of build my coaching career and uh, support me in the development of curated leadership. And so that's kind of how it all transpired together. And I still very much think that my theater is really a big part of the work because I use case studies and role play. And I think just a part of my own pedagogy I can't separate from is that theater piece. Yeah, and I think it really brings you, um, brings with the way you're doing that, a unique lens and a way to perhaps disarm people and see things in a different way that allows them to be perhaps more, I I don't want to say, sometimes there can be resistance, right? It's just another way of tapping into that connection and understanding, and uh, which I think is actually fascinating. So so I'm interested in understanding that a little bit more when you start to, to teach from that theatrical perspective. How does it bring the the audience and the individuals in and then kind of put them on that journey? Because it feels like there's like a journey, an inward journey they're going on. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me more about that, because I think that's quite fascinating. Sure. Yeah. So I use theater of the oppressed pedagogy because that's what I learned. I think I might have learned a little bit in high school, but I really learned a lot about uh, theater of the oppressed um, in university. And so it comes from pedagogy of the press. Paulo Freire talks about breaking free from this banking model of education. He's really focused on critical consciousness development and empowering people through education. And so Augusto Boal was, um, you know, uh, an apprentice of Paulo Freire and used the pedagogy to create theater of the oppressed, which is really about recognizing and disrupting power systems. There's a whole book of games for actors and non-actors. There's a whole pedagogy on role play and image theater. And so these are different tools that really are supposed to get community members engaged in understanding and disrupting power structures. So for example, I use a game uh, called uh, Murder by Numbers that's from the book. And that game is really used to uh, have fun, have a little bit of an icebreaker, but then I talk about levels of power after the game. So I say, okay, well, you know, Augusto Boal uh, and Freire, they talk about levels of power and they're kind of been talked about as power with, power over, power within. So let's talk about this game and where does that power lie? Who had the power? And so through these discussions, then I make metaphorical connections to them. And I said, okay, what if this was in the community? Also forum theater, which is where you have the spect actors, where you are performing, Generally, um, traditionally, it's all non-actors, but you can have like a short little script where then the audience has to finish the story or solve or create solutions and possibilities. And in that way, there's a creation of embodied empathy. So people are not just looking at a screen or doing something, they're getting engaged. And of course, that's been difficult to do for the virtual environment, but what I use is a lot of discussion or I use activities, things where they can actually 
see themselves reflected. And I also think about, I use Dr. Rudine Sims Bishop's analogy of windows and mirrors. So I think about, well, this work is a reflection of you and where you're at, but it's also a window opportunity for where you can go in terms of your learning. And so I think I, that, that approach that I use that has that um, sense of empathy and emotion and discovering that comes from theater is a really valuable experience to folks. Mm. And, uh, and, and what has some of the feedback been? Because I can imagine that people who perhaps might have um, not been able to engage as much in this experience, now all of a sudden they do this and they, it's quite enlightening. They start to see things very differently. What has some of the feedback been that you've gotten from people who have gone through this, your community members? Yeah, I think that A, they've had fun. Uh, they didn't think that maybe they'd like theater, but having to get up and move and do something and actually, you know, physically we do tableau work too, physically put your body in a shape physically engage in some of these power dynamic activities actually really supported their learning. I've also gotten feedback that it was a really, um, it was a very safe and brave environment for them. For example, they didn't felt like they were called out. They felt like they were called in and part of, part of the conversation because it wasn't about them. It was about either participating in a role play or looking at chairs and image theater or playing a game to find a come to arrive to these issues and these topics rather than pointing a finger at them. So in a way they're able to reconnect with themselves by going outside of themselves. If that mm. makes yeah. Well, it almost feels like the way you're creating it is a safe and inclusive environment where they can go on their learning journey. And another thing I love with what you're saying that I talk a lot about on this show is when I'm talking about inspirational leadership, it's really about leading with both head and hearts. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes we can be so intellectual and be up in the head. And so through this self-expression, through this art, I can see how that would really help people to connect more to their hearts as well, to get into their bodies. Absolutely. Yeah. And because I think that that's where the growth happens when we're in discomfort and the learning happens. And if we want to make real change and shift our thinking, shift our perspectives, shift our practice, we need to have made a connection as humans. We need to, right? Like, you know, we, we have those relationships with others and our relationships with others are based on a connection. So if we're trying to shift our practices, we need to make a connection to the work we're doing in order to be able to make that shift. Yes, absolutely. Um, so one of the things that I talk about on the show, um, when it's inspirational leadership are those behaviors and characteristics yeah. that I think really make up an inspirational leader. And so when you think about what you would like to see more of in leadership and, and, and the beauty of this is this is leadership in schools, this is leadership in workplaces, leaderships in communities and events and all of those different things. What are those qualities that you'd like to see more of? Yeah. So I think the first quality would be a lot of listening. I think it's a valuable character trait for leadership that I've learned a lot about too, is just this value of uh, listening and observing and really understanding what folks need, whether it's leading communities or leading an organization. Do you really understand what the needs are of the employees or the people or the community? I think that's really, really important. Um, I also think in terms of uh, inspirational leadership, uh, it's someone who leads by example. Right, so they practice what they preach, so to speak. Um, and for me, that means if they are trying to work with community, they're leading from a place of humility. I also think that uh, when I think about some of the inspirational leaders um, in my life, uh, they're also unapologetic. 
And what I mean by that is not unapologetic in a way that's um, mean or unfair or crass with their employees or their team, but they're unapologetic about their mission and their values and what they're committed to. And for me, that is really important uh, because when I work with folks or as a leader myself, I wanna be driven by my mission and my, and my values and values are very important to me. I also think about an inspirational leader as one who can balance both the, um, the management side of leadership, but the human side. So someone who's very empathetic and someone who can really bring people in to see their full potential. And that comes from um, a certain person that can be able to separate themselves from the work and really look to others. Because I think that a lot of times inspirational leaders are thought of as this single person. And that's something that I wanted to talk about as well, is that for me, I think uh, moving towards collectivist leadership and collectivist uh, brainstorming and thinking and forward thinking is really important because I don't think a leader uh, you know, exists in a vacuum. So I think it's so important to think of inspirational leadership as ground up, as, um, as a collective journey, not as just one person arriving at a place of inspiration. Yeah, I agree with everything that you you shared there. And I think you um, you brought something up that's really important. And that's that whole piece around um, the best leaders understand it's not just about them. First of all, the best leaders are creating other leaders and they're creating a collaborative environment where other people can be seen and heard. And, you know, I, I, I think many times where I, I've coached leaders and said, your goal isn't to go to, to go into this meeting and take a step back and do a lot of listening and not be the one that's telling everybody what's going to happen. Let them be part of that, that dialogue. And to me, that's also where, where you said the humility, right? It's getting out of ego and recognizing that to, to be a great leader is to create a space where a whole bunch of other people can come together. And we can always create much um, bigger, more powerful things when we co-create as a group, as a community than we ever can on our own. Absolutely. And I think that's the way shifts happen too, right? Like if there's no buy-in, then folks are not going to want to make those changes. And so I think it's really about empowering others around us, um, no matter what stage of the career they're at or what level of the organization they're in, to really share their voice and their opinion. Um, Shaliza, when you were talking before, I could I could hear when you were talking about the people that you thought of who had been inspirational leaders to you. It seemed like someone was jumping in and in, in for you. And I think it's always nice too to be able to give other people shout outs on, on this show as well, because there's people who have been instrumental on your journey, who have been those inspiring leaders. And so I'm just curious, because it felt like someone was on your mind when you were speaking, yeah. um, who jumps out, out, out at you as someone who was one of those inspiring leaders for you? Yeah, I have a few, but I'd say uh, Dr. Karen Mapp from the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Her work is around family, school, community engagement. And just the way she leads is, you know, it's unapologetic, it's authentic, but it's it's so down to earth and, and, and humble. And the way she's able to kind of bring folks in and support their growth is just amazing. And she teaches leadership. So, um, you know, Dr. Karen Mapp, um, Tracy Jones, who is the Director of Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Belonging at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Um, I have a principal I worked with here, Dr. Janine Small, um, also a former principal I worked with, Dr. Katherine uh, Evans. And what I, what I loved about all of these women 
is they're, they're very different, but they also, uh, something that's been my journey actually is they're not worried about what other people are going to think of their leadership style. And that's part of that unapologetic piece. And for me, I think there's always been a bit of that imposter syndrome or a bit of that um, insecurity about leading full force because I'm always very conscious as, a, as an actor. I'm very self-reflective and conscious. I don't want to be leading always um, individualistically um, or, or, you know, from a top a top-down approach. So I'm always conscious of that. So I think uh, these inspirational leaders are unapologetic in their approach, but have a way of kind of magnetizing people to them and then giving them that own power and control to just go off on their own. So there's just something about these women uh, that really is inspiring in terms of uh, their dedication to their mission and values. And again, to seeing that big picture without letting, you know, I'm imagining like a, a game where, you know, people are clinging on, your people are climbing up like Super Mario Brothers onto a cart and people are kind of pulling them down like crabs in the bucket, but, but they're still gonna go for what they want and shut out that noise. And that noise is something that's hard to shut out. And I, I think that's why they're inspirational. Yes. Especially when I think of women, the way you've described them is that, that not shrinking, right? Like really owning their power, but the power is not coming from ego that I want you to all do what I say, because it's more coming from a place of this vision and this bigger mission that is actually ultimately coming from a place of contribution. They yeah. want to make things happen and it's coming from a wonderful place, but they're not going to pretend to be somebody they're not in order to be liked by everybody. Right. Some people might feel like, Oh, like, who are you? And they're like, well, because I I'm really, I believe in this mission and the noise can very much, I see this so often and with women and where they can lose that confidence and leaders in general as well, right? Um, to be a really strong leader is to recognize sometimes you're going to make hard decisions that not everybody else is going to agree with, but you're, if it's coming from a values driven place, you have to recognize that it's not about, and I think women can sometimes also, and men, um, suffer with the people pleasing, right? Wanting everybody to like them. Absolutely. And also I find, you know, there's this kind of idea sometimes when you're a leader, you, you can't be uh, humanistic or you can't be relational, but I think it's about building those relationships, you know, but you also made me think about something, which I, I'm taking a women in leadership course in my, in my um, doctorate right now. And we're really thinking about the intersectionalities of gender, race, and class for, for leadership, but also this idea of stereotypes, gender stereotypes that, that plague women in leadership, right? And so really overcoming those and as organizations and institutions moving away from this idea of, you know, uh, women, women can't be leaders, women can't make decisions, um, but they can be empathetic and building on that both. They can have the qualities of building relationships and being empathetic, but also having that sense of command and control and um, that efficiency. And so there's lots of shifts in our own thinking that we need to have as leaders, but then move our uh, teams forward in that way. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. Well put. Um, perfect segue to start to go into when you think about workplaces and organizations uh, and aspirationally, we talked a little bit aspirationally for leaders and what you'd like to see more of when you start to think about organizations and, and cultures and what you would like to see created there. What's your vision? If you could just kind of wave that magic wand and say, this is what I would like to be happening in workplaces. What would that look like? So I think that there, for me, a magic, magic wand wish would be for there to be more 
support of one another. I feel like in our society, it's very much individualistic, um, very competitive, very much driven on who's better and who's aspiring and all these types of things. And I think for me, I'd like to see workplaces as more collaborative. I'd like to see them as more supportive of one another's growth. Um, especially I work in a, a female dominated profession in education. And I find that uh, there's often more competition than uh, support and collaboration. So then that's something I wanna see. Also, when I think about organizations and you know, in my work as uh, in equity, diversity and inclusion, I really wanna see organizations, not only for example, making the Black North pledge, but I, I wanna see organizations that are, are now uh, putting their money where their mouth is, right? And really making shifts to not be tokenistic in the way that they hire women or women of color or BIPOC women or um, LGBTQ plus women um, and femmes, but really to think about what are we committed to back to those values and how do we get everyone on board and really using that transformational leadership style to get everyone on board to really think about inclusion because inclusion doesn't mean we just hire a bunch of folks from different backgrounds it means that they feel like they have a sense of belonging so how do we create a nurturing environment that makes folks feel like they are appreciated valued and that they belong without being tokenistic. And so that's something mm -hmm. that uh, would be my magic wand wish that it's not, you know, employees saying, ah, oh, there's Shaliza, you know, another token hire or another affirmative action hire, but that we can get to a place where we as employees are committed to that, not only leaders, right? And it's not only because of Black Lives Matter, it's not only because of the issues happening today, but it's because that's what makes our, uh, organizations rich and diverse and uh, full of, full of breath and depth. Mm. I love that vision. And one of the things that shows up for me when you say that is this is not about putting on band-aids. It's about getting at the root and recognizing when you're getting at the root, this is a long-term journey. It's not just something like you said, with the tokenism, oh, we do a couple of things. We're good to go. No, it's like what you're trying to create in the long-term in terms of that that culture of belonging. And I think in, in terms of creating a culture of belonging, some of that starts to, to be about creating brave spaces where real dialogues happening. And I know you've done some work around brave spaces. So, so tell me a little bit around what does that look like to create brave spaces? Sure. So there's a debate between safe and brave spaces. So I'll say that I use the term brave space rather than safe space, which is used a lot because safe uh, makes an assumption that it's safe for everyone and it may not be safe for everyone. For example, if you're asking for pronouns, that might not be safe for someone. If you're asking, you know, even in a, like a little icebreaker at work, if you're asking folks to talk about like a favorite um, food or favorite religious holiday, that could be triggering for folks. So uh, safe is not necessarily safe for all. So I use brave spaces as a place to think about creating a environment where folks feel uh, held and supported in their conversation, where folks feel like they can uh, be direct, where they can give criticisms in a, in a loving way, where they can call folks in if they make mistakes, uh, if they want to support, and it won't be taken personally, it won't be uh, dismissed, it won't be seen as a punishment or a, they won't be reprimanded for, for that sharing. That's what a brave space is. And I say that in organizations, we can create 
brave spaces, not only through our workplace policies and procedures, but we can create brave spaces uh, by asking folks to come together and, you know, I model community agreements, for example. Um, uh, Dr. Glenn Singleton has a book called Courageous Conversations About Race, which is a great way to think about how are we going to have conversations that are difficult in our workplace, right? almost similar to like harassment policies. That can be a set, a set of agreements that then create that brave space. The key is uh, accountability, right? Are we gonna follow through and be accountable to what we say is gonna be created, creating that brave space? And so that brave space is really about uh, many things that can happen in an organization where folks at all levels in the organization feel like they have a stake in what's happening and feel like they have a say in what's happening. And so to create that brave space means that some folks at the top have to also let go of power, right? And control. And that's difficult for some leaders, but that for me is an inspirational leader who can let go of ego and self and personal uh, gain to kind of include everyone in that conversation um, and be open to that criticism. And again, back to that windows and mirrors uh, metaphor. Yes, absolutely. And um, not you don't necessarily have to name specific organizations, but um, can you give some examples where you've started to see that happen, where those brave spaces were created, and then you're starting to see those shifts in the organizations? Absolutely. I'll give an example of, you know, I was working with an organization and uh, we were working through some case studies. And some of the case studies were mentioning some themes that were very close to home, right, because they were from the organization. And so I got some feedback that the team felt very uh, upset that this was mentioned because they felt like it was a personal attack on them. But over the week, this person said that she got more and more feedback that they said, wait a minute, I think that was the point of Shaliza bringing it in so that we felt discomfort, we were able to talk it through. And then they were able to come to a place where they said, oh, it's not a personal attack on us. Is about how can we be mindful and think about different ways we would approach this problem next time. So within a week, they went from a, a whole journey of thinking about uh, taking something personally to letting it go, decentering themselves and seeing the big picture and understanding the takeaway or the learning value. And so for me, they were starting to engage in that conversation and have a brave space with folks where they weren't just uh, pushing the ideas away, where they weren't just saying, okay, I'm gonna shut down now. I'm not gonna discuss this, but oh, okay, I'm getting this and supporting each other through that transformation and that shift of mindset. Yes, that's huge. It's a, it is a journey, right? At first it can feel a little bit triggering or uncomfortable to hear that. And then it's, it's working through all of those emotions that show up and then getting to the other side around, oh, why did we bring Shalisa in the first place? Oh, to do exactly what's happening right now. Right. And so recognizing and recognizing it's an opportunity. Um, you're doing so much, um, wonderful work around power and privilege. And I think it's, um, there's so much opportunity to do um, learning and unlearning and educating ourselves around power and privilege. And so when you start to think about individuals who really want to get on this journey and understand more about power and privilege, what, what, what do you suggest as a starting point? Yes, absolutely. So, you know, another, another uh, great mentor and friend, Dr. Jarnisa Armande talks about this idea of narr personal narratives. And for me, especially in the Zoom world, I take that to think about understanding our social identities 
So I think that the great place to start is by starting with the self and reflecting on yourself. What do you know about yourself and where you're at now? What do you know about others? And what do you hope to learn? So I might ask folks to think about their own social identities, uh, write them down. What are even social identities? Which identities do we think about the most or the least? Which do we not even consider in our lives? And then what does that mean for our leadership? What does that mean for the coworker sitting next to us? Do they all share the same uh, you know, character traits and, and social identities? Social identities being that of like, for example, race, gender, class, sexual orientation, educational status, age, disability, for example. How often do we sit and reflect on our identity and what we know about it and what we haven't maybe reconciled in our identity and what we have to learn more about? And then we can support others in that journey. So for me, when I talk about power and privilege, I talk about it first from a place of, again, calling in, not around shame and guilt, but around understanding where we're at as individuals and then considering what we don't know. And what we don't know is that kind of space about power and privilege because we've been privileged enough to not have to consider, for example, as an able-bodied woman, I've been privileged to not have to consider whether I'm going to have to take uh, a ramp or a elevator, whether there'll be access for me in a building, for example, that is a, a form of privilege, right? Or, you know, the ability to uh, attend university or, or understand or navigate the application process or, you know, the educational status I have. So a lot of these are privileges that we have to think about and consider, not as a place of shame and guilt again, or fragility, but rather as, hmm, I have these privileges. Now, how can I leverage them to meet my goals and the goals of others and to support uh, others in their, in their journeys? Mm, I love the way you framed that. I think that um, just taking that step back and looking at that way, you start to recognize all of these different ways, but it's not about shame and guilt because then shame and guilt, you can just stay in there and you're not going to take forward action, right? Yes. Understanding, having compassion for yourself around why that was happening and recognizing that you're part of a, a system um, that has been created to, to make things like that. And so um, I love that. I think that's a really good way you've described it. Um, and it's also centering, taking it away from the self. Because when we feel shame and guilt, we're always yeah. thinking about ourselves. Yeah. And the goal, again, is that collective community. How can we think about others, right? So yes. often when folks are feeling offended by something, like there's a great book called Immunity to Change. And when folks are feeling guilty, shameful, angry, it's because they're looking inward and it's difficult, right? They're reflecting on the inside. And that's difficult for them. So how can we break away from that mm. and separate it from the cells, you know? And for example, when we talk about microaggressions, you know, I've got all the time, oh, you look so young for your age or you're so accomplished for your age or you're so articulate um, or where are you from? And I'll have to like talk folks through this. And I do a lot of work with folks around microaggressions and the role plays around it. And really understanding that when we're asking questions like that, it's feeding our own curiosity and it's about us. It's not about really learning about the other people. And so we have to be honest about that relationship of power, privilege, and also be really uh, honest about our, our own intentions. 
Mm. I'm glad you went there because I wanted to talk a little bit more about microaggressions because I think those show up a lot in the workplace and outside of the workplace. And, and you just gave a, a great example of one. Um, what are some of those other things that that could be that they're happening way more often that we recognize? It's almost like common practice that you'd like to see less of when it comes to microaggressions. Well, especially with women, I think in leadership, a lot of microaggressions about um you know, oh, you're, you're leaving early again, right? So family obligations or, um, you know, not getting a promotion because you took a year off mat leave, for example, or microaggressions I, I hear and see a lot about are, you know, uh, you're so articulate for, for females or when females are not meeting a stereotypical gender role that is assumed of them in leadership. Oh, you know, she's so bossy or so aggressive. And so I think those microaggressions, um, I, I use an iceberg to kind of talk about uh, the microaggressions um, and racism and bias and all of it. And what's underneath the surface, we can't see it, but that's the biggest impact. And so those implicit microaggressions of like, where are you from? You look so young for your age, or how did you get into this leadership role? Or she's so bossy. When we repeat those things and we don't interrupt them, they can be very harmful in reproducing stereotypes and othering uh, of folks, right? Whether it be uh, of, of any of any social identity, whether it's a woman um, or a woman of color, or whether it's someone um, you know from a different background or newcomer. And so we want to get away from that othering. And so the important part is to be listening and reflecting. Um, and when it comes to microaggressions really thinking before you ask a question, it's not about holding back, but it's about what is my true intention in asking this question or making this statement? Um, and is it going to be harmful or helpful, right? So oftentimes we're trying to build an, a relationship with somebody, but we end up alienating them by othering them. Mm. Yes, yes. And I'm thinking of people who are listening right now or watching, and I know some of them are thinking, I've experienced a microaggression. Um, what should I do when that happens? Like, how do I go? Because I think what happens is sometimes people are experiencing it. They're not addressing it because it feels uncomfortable. They don't know what to do with it. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's many ways. I think for the person who is maybe experiencing the microaggression, um, you know, it, it can be very harmful. So I would say practice self-care. If, if you don't feel like you want to say something, um, then it's not necessarily your role. It's the person who's kind of committing it to do that. But also it's about this miscommunication, right? And the sender and the receiver, the sender's trying to say something, the receiver's not receiving it. And so I think it's important for you to uh, create that brave space where you don't feel like you're going to feel more harm or, or feel upset. But uh, I think it's okay to say, you know what, um, ask a question back. If someone says, uh, where are you really from? I say, well, what do you want to know about, right? So kind of countering it with a question. <clears throat> or if someone says to me, oh, you're so articulate. I'll say, well, what did you expect me to be? Or, or tell me a little bit more about why you think that, right? Or um, what are you really trying to learn, right? Um, also, I think that it's the responsibility of other folks to do the learning, right? And so if someone were to say that to you or question you, um, I think if you're the receiver uh, of that feedback, it's, it's to be like, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't, I, didn't, um, I didn't mean it that way. Thank you for telling me and moving on. But if you're like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry, and you make it about yourself, again, it's about yourself. If you are overhearing this statement, 
I think it's a great, you know, thing to say, you know what, I think that was kind of a microaggression. I don't think that was appropriate to say. <clears throat> and even for that person to say, I don't think that was appropriate. I think that's another great tool. Uh, sometimes you may have a power relationship that you're not so comfortable saying. So it could be like subtly, like, you know, at the dinner table or at a meeting saying, oh, you know what, like I went to this really great workshop and I heard about this. And what do you all think about that? And having discussion and dialogue or, or sharing a video, there's like a really good video microaggressions and talking about it with folks. But I think it comes from awareness. And I talk about awareness, learning and action as three sort of pillars to moving forward. So how can we be aware of them by doing our own work? It's not the work of those who are historically marginalized or who are experiencing microaggressions to teach, it's our own work. So how then can we uh, do some work to create awareness for ourselves, learn more about them, how we respond, how we um, you know, take on microaggressions, how we react to them. And then that action piece of shifting and changing our behavior and stopping ourselves in our tracks by saying, what is my intention of asking this? Slowing down our thinking and then moving a step back. Mm, thank and you so much. And also noting that everyone sort of reacts differently as well. Yeah. So. Yeah. And, and thank you. Cause I think you gave some really tactical things for that individual who's doing it, um, to recognize. And I think I love the, the, where you just ended there too, right? Pause. Maybe you don't want to talk so quickly and really take that opportunity to pause before you're asking questions to be very intentional. And it's like anything, it's like training your brain. Like at first it might feel uncomfortable because you're used to being a certain way. And now you're recognizing that there was some unconscious behavior happening. So again, I'm, I continue to say, be kind and graceful to yourself as, as you're doing it. But I like what you said there too, because I've seen this as well, where then the person, when they recognize they did it, it's like, they're, they're like, oh my God, I feel so about making a big kind of deal of it. And now that person is feeling like they need to make them feel better about it. Absolutely. And that's missing the whole point again. Absolutely. Missing the whole point. Yeah. Yeah. We're putting, putting that back on the other folks. And so it's just about it's about self-work, right? Yeah. And reconciling when we make mistakes. Yeah. Beautiful. Um, you have so much knowledge and so much insight. And I know everyone listening to this episode is, is they're learning a lot. And I hope everyone's writing lots of these notes and, and catching a lot of the books that Shaliza shared. And I will be having show notes that are going to include all of this. Um, but as we start to wrap up today's conversation, I'd love to give you an opportunity to leave your final thoughts with the audience. Hmm. Yes, so many thoughts. I think that I would say that leadership is a journey and a process, not a destination. It's ever evolving. Uh, as I've, I've learned uh, over the years, there's no checklist for what a good leader is. It comes from within and the inspiration comes from within. It's authentic, it's vulnerable um, and it is value driven. And then I also want to say, uh, you know, in terms of the equity work and the work I'm doing is equity leadership or leadership around equity, diversity and inclusion and creating inclusive communities takes commitment and dedication. But again, it's a it's a journey. It's a it's a process rather than a destination. And I think that's something that I'm honing um, for myself as a leader to really think about um, leading with those values. And so that's what I want to leave folks with that. Uh, do one small thing that you can uh, today, right? One small or big thing that can really shift your perspective and support you on your leadership journey, uh, growing not only as an individual, but as communities, because we are in relation with other folks uh, formally or informally every day. 
Ah, oh, such wonderful words of wisdom. And Shaliza, where can people find more about you? Sure. So on Instagram at Curated Leadership, uh, online at www.curated/leadership.com or hyphenleadership.com, I should say. And uh, and on Twitter as well at Shaliza Jamal or Curated Leadership. And I think those will all be in the show notes correctly if I said it wrong. Um, so yeah, I, I love to connect with folks and uh, chat about your journeys. Amazing. And are there any special projects or events that you have going on in the next little while you want to let people know about? Yeah, so I'm going to be starting in 2021. I'm going to be, uh, you know, dropping a online program um, on a three-part series on inclusive leadership. So look out for that in 2021, uh, really working through the virtual world right now. Uh, so that's what I'm working on. Uh, I'm be speaking at a few conferences next week. Uh, uh, KESP, I believe it is, is on November 26th, speaking to adult educators uh, and continuing education educators, and then speaking to the York University Alumni um, Association to, to new grads on the uh, 18th or 19th, I think it is. So uh, stay out, stay tuned. And on LinkedIn, I'll post some stuff there so folks can take a look. Amazing. Amazing. Thank you so much for being on the show today, Shaliza. Thank you so much for having me. This was great. And it's great to have it uh, sort of face to face. So I can see you as you know, we're getting used to uh, new ways of learning and, and uh, leading and, and creating together. Thank you. And that's a great reminder for everybody who's listening. Uh, many of you might be listening to the podcast on my website, on Apple Podcasts, but it's also available in video. I do it on YouTube as well. I've definitely noticed during this global pandemic that some people are really craving the um, the people, the face-to-face -face connection. So they've been going onto my YouTube channel. Having said that, other people have said they've been enjoying uh, listening to the podcast as they're getting some fresh air, being in nature, going on walks, um, driving their cars. So just want to let everybody know that that's there. And if you've enjoyed the show, please share this with others. Let them know about inspirational leadership. This podcast has really grown organically by people spreading the word. Wonderful. Have a wonderful day, everyone. Take care, everyone.